Hi everyone. A couple of years ago, Helen Coffey, a travel journalist, had a brilliant idea. She would go flight-free for a year, and that is a huge sacrifice for a travel writer who used to fly nearly every week. But like many others, she realized that less flying is one of those few things where a change in your lifestyle does have a bit of an impact on our planet. So Helen set on a course that would dramatically change the travel habits of a travel journalist. Not that she stopped traveling. Instead, she discovered new ways of traveling by train, by bus, boat, even by bike. And she wrote a book about her experiences, including the talks that she had with climate experts and climate activists. And this book, it's called Zero Altitude, uh, comes out on uh, the 26th of May. And I am one of the lucky ones that has already read the book. And I can really advise you, it is fun to read, but you also learn a lot from it. Um, I'm very happy that Helen agreed to join for today's podcast. Uh, some of you will maybe know her because she's the travel editor of The Independent. And that makes her the first travel editor of a national publication in the United Kingdom to pledge to go flight-free. And Helen regularly appears as an expert contributor on travel-related stories for BBC News Channel or BBC Breakfast or BBC Radio 4 and others. But until today, she has never been in the Planet podcast. So welcome, Helen. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. I have to say, you know, I can't believe I've never been on the podcast before. That has been very remiss of me. <laughs> I'm glad we're, we're solving that problem today by me coming on. Wonderful. It's, uh, it's, it's great to have you on board. And podcasting is really fun, I can tell you, especially with Colin, which makes it uh, so simple that even non-technical people can be, like me can, can do it by just, just using, uh, using a smartphone. And um, yeah, so I'm, I'm really happy that you could join us today. And um, you're right in Zero Altitude about many of the central themes that we discuss in the Planet podcast. So we, we often talk about things like climate change and, and green living. And we, we, we talk about uh, quite a few books, actually, that we have discussed here. So you are uh, the perfect fit uh, to have on board uh, today. Um, I, I understand uh, that you are now in Spain, and I also read that Spain is now experiencing the first hot days of a rapidly developing heat wave, uh, not only in Spain, over large parts of Europe, but especially Spain seems to be badly hit, and we're only in mid-May. Is, is that maybe a good reminder for us that we should change our travel habits? Yeah, I, I really think it is. So I'm lucky in that I'm currently in Valencia, um, which is on the coast. So, I mean, the temperature feels very, very nice for me as a Brit that's just come from London. Um, it's kind of mid to late 20s, but there's a nice kind of breeze off the sea. But I'm also very aware all the Valencians I'm speaking to say, keep saying it's really hot, it's really hot, it shouldn't be this hot at this time of year because we're not, we're still in spring, we haven't hit June, July yet. And elsewhere around the country, yeah, like you said, we're, we're just on this precipice of a heat wave where we think that kind of people in Madrid are going to be sweltering in maybe 40 degrees kind of thing in the next few days, which is just, I mean, it's insane. It's insane for May. It's not sustainable. It's not livable. Um, and it, 
you know, it's it's funny. Often in the UK, we will have headlines that really celebrate when it's you know when it's hot. Oh, we're going to be in for a for a surprise heat wave. Yes, and it's really seen as this celebratory thing. And I just wonder at what point it's like, oh no, this isn't something to celebrate. This is something really worrying and dangerous. And that the seasons are massively changing. And um, you know, we're not we're not set up for that. And our our agriculture and the, the you know the things that we grow aren't set up for that and the the speed at which it's changed so yeah for me it's definitely a wake-up call it's not something to be giddy and excited about it's a it's a sign of the bad things that we're doing to where we live yeah yeah and it's uh it's frightening to see happening in in different places all over the world at at the same time i mean the southern part of us is frightening a lot but especially now in uh in india and pakistan it's also it's a massive heat wave not and, and not temporarily it's I mean it's a long long uh lasting heat wave over a huge area and it's 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 literally uh, killing killing people so uh yeah and this this early in may it's really really absurd and um so yes i i wonder uh of, of course coming to your book uh flying contributes to climate change and that is about it's about two percent i believe of all the uh contributions to climate change but as as you say in your book it's one of the few things where we as an individual can really make a change and you decided to make that change can you can you say how you how you got there, what motivated you to set that change. And maybe you can have your, your phone a little bit closer because my voice, I think, is louder than your voice. Yeah, thanks. Is that better? That's better, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, it's funny. It sounds small, doesn't it, 2% when you, when you weigh it up against other things. But um, yes, as you just said, it, it's... It's something that you can actually make a decision about um, as an individual, unlike lots of other areas where we're completely powerless or we feel powerless um, to reduce emissions. And it's also, I mean, the thing that I keep coming back to is it's one of the kind of the biggest, um, how do I phrase this? It's, it's really a source of inequality because most of the people in this world have never got on a plane. They will have never taken a flight. It's a very, very top elite activity. Um, and it doesn't feel like that to us often if we live in kind of westernized countries where we're very used to it. Um, and people are often shocked when I say even in the UK, um, you know, only about half of people in any given year will take a flight. So it's, it's not something that everyone is doing, and yet the consequences of it are felt normally by the people least likely to fly, right? So the countries, developing countries that are really suffering under the effects of climate change already. Um, so yeah, but in answer to your question, how did I uh, decide that I was gonna do this? Um, it was actually just through the course of my job. So um, you might remember back in 2019, uh, this idea of, um, Flickscam in Sweden was picking up lots of traction. So the idea was lots of Swedes and lots of prominent Swedes, including Greta Thunberg's mother, um, and then Greta herself had said, right, not gonna take flights anymore because it's something, it's something I feel shame about. It's not a good thing. Um, and to kind of counteract, I think traditionally we've had this idea of flights being something incredibly aspirational that 
oh, we brag when we're on the way to the airport, we take pictures of ourselves on the plane. And so it was almost combating that idea and saying, nah, it's something if you take a flight, you should feel a little bit kind of, oh, <laughs> a little bit shady about it and not wanting to tell people. Um, so I'd been reading a lot about this and then thought, oh, it'd be great to write a feature on it for my for my job. And um, I investigated and researched and found out actually there was a movement in the UK. Um, someone called Anna Hughes had set up um, a campaign called Flight Free UK and was trying to convince people to stop flying for a year. So you take a pledge and you say, OK, in this year, I'm not going to take a single flight. So I reached out to her and I interviewed her and she put me in touch with lots of other great people who'd taken the pledge and I interviewed them, thinking nothing of it in, in relation to myself. And then I wrote this feature and I just, I don't know, you know sometimes you hear an idea and then it plants a seed in you and then that kind of starts to have little tendrils that grow and then it keeps on growing till it's a big old tree that you can't get rid of. <laughs> and that's how I felt. I just, I suddenly had this weight. I don't know if I want to say on my conscience, but it was just this idea that mm, I'm not exempt from from this. I am a human being in the world, and my actions have consequences. And I think as a journalist, you can often forget that because you're looking from the outside in, and you're reporting on things, and you're the observer, and you forget that no, you are inhabiting this planet too. Um, and so, yeah, the original idea, I thought, oh, wouldn't it be good to take the pledge myself for 2020? You know, it was a year round which lots was coming together um, in terms of sustainability and climate. And it was it had all this momentum behind it. And there was lots going on. I thought that's a good year. I could write a book about it. Um, and that's how the idea for Zero Altitude came about. As it turned out, um, 2020, I mean, in one way, it was a good year for it because I couldn't really go anywhere, um, but neither could anyone else because of COVID. So it felt um, it felt like a bit of a cheat year um, <laughs> because most people were staying grounded. So I thought I should carry it on. Um, and I took the pledge last year and then this year again. Um, so it will be at least three years, but I, I'm probably, I'm probably going to take it next year as well, I think. Wonderful, yeah. It's, I, I recognize um, what um, uh, from um, from from what you're saying from other authors as well that have uh, a same kind of experience of writing about climate change, but for a long time writing about it as it as it it is some kind of something from other people and that you're not part of it. And uh, then suddenly realizing that um, uh, that that you actually have to act yourself as well. Um, uh, for instance, um, uh, this changes everything. From Naomi, now I forgot her f family name. Um, the, the the famous book of a couple of years ago. She wrote exactly the same thing, and that and I recognized parts of it as well. When I was still a diplomat, I was negotiating on all kinds of environmental things. But I flew to Geneva to negotiate about it, and there's actually perfectly good train connections, uh, which which are so much better, which I'm new using nowadays. Um, so for listeners that don't know, I still fly between continents, but I try to uh, not at all fly within a continent because I've no other, uh, I've no clue how else to to get over the transatlantic ocean. You cannot all be like uh, Great Tatumbari and just. Uh, um, take a take a sailing boat and fly over the ocean. 
um, which is also something about debate, something debatable how uh, sustainable that part was, by the way. But she gave a great example. I was living in, in Stockholm in those days, so I, I, I know her from that time as well, and I've joined her early uh, protest when she just started. So, yeah, so I think that is uh, that is a really good awareness. I think it's it's... I really admire that you, as a travel journalist, uh, give this example to people um, because it's 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 important. You are a voice and you reach a lot of people with this message. And then I got from your book that once you started um, uh, traveling with alternative ways, that you actually found out that it's really fun and adventurous. Could you say a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I think I, um, yeah, I expected it to be a bit of an exercise in in self-flagellation or martyrdom, you know, like, oh, look at me, it's really hard, but, you know, I care about the planet, <laughs> I'm amazing. I mean, not that I feel that way about myself, but I thought it would feel like that, like an exercise in self-denial. And actually, what I love about it is that every trip I've done um, since I stopped flying has just had this added element of adventurousness to it for me um, that, you know, travel is so easy nowadays. Um, well, <laughs> not during the last two years, but um, discounting that, um, you know, with, with the Internet, you can kind of go online and you can book your holiday in under two minutes. Um, and then you don't there's there's no kind of obstacles or challenges you just check in you go you get there um, and you have a nice time and that, there's obviously something wonderful about that but it does kind of take away I think some of the the adventurousness you'd have felt you know even 20 maybe less than 20 years ago when you didn't have constant internet access constant you know resources in which like you'd never have to talk to another person or ask for help ask for directions get lost, figure out what's going on. Um, and I think slow travel gives back some of that feeling of exhilaration and, and finding things new um, in the culture and the place that you're visiting. Um, so even, you know, what none of my, my travels have been crazy, crazy, you know, off the wall, exciting, um, but all of them have felt in their own way like nothing I've ever experienced before. So one of them was, you know, taking, um, I did my first interrailing trip. So getting the train from London to Paris and then Paris to Munich. And then I got the sleeper train overnight from Munich to Rijeka in Croatia. Um, and A, I'm, always, I'm amazed by the speed of these journeys because, I mean, it's a matter of perspective, right? If you just fly to Croatia... Yeah, that's pretty fast. Um, but the fact I could get all that way in, I think it took 24 hours altogether. So I set off, you know, 10 a.m. on Friday, and then I arrived in the city um, at 10 a.m. Saturday morning, having slept on the train. I just, I just thought that was amazing, you know, to wake up and you're just like kind of rattling through. You're suddenly like, there's the Adriatic Sea. Oh my goodness, I'm here. I've arrived. And you feel like some kind of hero getting off the train, you know, like, I made it, guys. <laughs> Which I don't, I've never felt like that getting off a flight. I normally feel incredibly grumpy and tired and annoyed. But um, so I just, yeah, for me, it's really given me back this, um, this love of travel again. Like, 
I've always loved travel, but it's it's yeah reinvigorated it for me. I would say um, for sure. Yeah, yeah I, I remember in somewhere in the book you write, uh, you say it's it's the most used cliche ever, but you say it's sometimes good to to mention a cliche. You have to help me there, but it's you write sounds like um, it's it's uh, it's it's about the journey and not the destination. Um, uh, and that is, yeah, it's it's something that I really recognize. What I find is that you experience a holiday different if you if the if if you if you have slow travel to get there. Uh, for instance, if you're if you're in London, you are from London, you uh, probably normally take the tube to go anywhere because it's it's just uh, the fastest way to go from one end to the city to to the other. But you're all underground. Whereas if you take a bus, you you experience where you are. You go through different neighborhoods, etc., and it's more fun. So if you, if you're let's say in the Piccadilly line, they actually have pictures there uh, of what is above ground, what you are actually missing by by being in the tube. And this is the same if you fly. You just get in a plane, and in exactly that same plane, the same seat where you've been sitting in the past two hours, you walk out, and you're in a completely different place. Whereas going somewhere overland, either in a bus or a train, is is uh, yeah, it's 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 a lovely experience, and I uh, maybe we see a kind of revival of this kind of uh, traveling, and I recognize what you say about uh, the speed because if you compare it, what you did was a bit what was the grand journey in let's say the Victorian age when when young rich. Uh, men, I think more than women, uh, took took a trip, and they often took like a year to to go all through Europe, and they normally went more or less this direction. I think more Italy than Croatia in those days, um, but there was a lot of slow travel, and that was forming for the rest of their lives that they had been there. Um, so it's uh, yeah, maybe we see a bit of revival of it, and I'm I'm very much. Uh, much with with you there. So if you uh, you also experience things like sleeping in trains, you just mentioned that sleeping in in youth hostels. Uh, how, how is that? Because normally, as a travel writer, I suppose you, um, you you probably get offered very good hotel rooms in your job. Yeah, yeah. So that was um, actually on my way back from that same trip. Um, it was kind of frustrating, actually, because the whole thing had gone completely to plan, you know, and it was this full, I can't remember how many, it was seven or ten days. It was, and every every bit of my journey I'd executed perfectly, and I felt like, yes. And then the last hurdle was just getting a Eurostar back to London, and they'd cancelled the train without telling me. And <laughs> I was just wandering around the Gare du Nord for a, like, a really long time without quite clicking. Oh, the train's just not, not happening. Uh and so yeah, I just checked into a youth hostel, which I know this sounds very snobby, but I um I never I never normally do that because I yeah, I'm very lucky. I'm a travel editor. Lots of people will offer me very, very nice accommodation. Um and yeah, so that that was my first time and I was like, Oh, it's actually really nice. I shouldn't be so snobby about it and maybe I would use that again in future because it was only about twenty five quid or something. I thought, wow. This is incredible. The things I've been missing with my bougie hotel stays, you know. Yeah, one of the 
uh, advantages of traveling that way is that you meet more people. It's more fun because you 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 are more. You, I think hotels are more anonymous in a way. You just quickly move to your own room. You close the door. Uh, whereas in those kind of use hostel settings, you you meet all kinds of people, which is uh, which is interesting. And um, I guess in in you must have had that kind of experience as well in 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 Spain uh, when uh, on 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 the Camino. Is that is that something where uh, did did you stay in those kind of settings as well? Um, so actually, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know i am um, i yeah so i did part of the camino del norte which yeah takes you um in in spain i didn't have time to do anywhere near the full thing which was a shame but i did from bilbao to santander essentially um and i was really really busy at work and running really low on time and so i just did the thing of throwing some money at the problem, as I like to call it, um, and booked through a lovely company called Follow the Camino. And they essentially, they just go, right, which bit do you want to do? They book all your hotels for you. They actually take your bag in between hotels. They, uh, so you don't even have to carry your own bag. Which again, I, this is all making me sound like some kind of princess or, or duchess, but, um, you know, <laughs> it, it made it for a really hassle-free experience and again I think if you're if you're worried about slow travel being too difficult for you there are also ways in which you can make it more luxurious and more accessible um, if that's what you want to do um, but yeah that was a really it was an incredible experience because even without having staying at the hostels and things um, you meet so many people on that walk for anyone that's ever done it you'll know it's a wonderful thing of you know people people pass you and, and they've got you know, hiking boots on, and they just stop and talk, and you walk together for a bit, and then and then you just say goodbye, and you know you probably won't see them again, and that's absolutely fine. Um, and I just can't think of many other social situations where you have that kind of interaction with people that's very ephemeral and fleeting, but kind of lovely for that. You're just kind of pilgrims accompany each other for a short way, and that's enough. And you don't, you, it's not even small talk. You kind of get straight into why, you know, why are you doing it? Is it spiritual? You know, how have you found it so far? It gets kind of deep quite quickly. And I really enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, so this is like an organized trip. I mean, there was many ways that you can, you can organize a walking trip. You can just go on your own or you can, you can, you can book it in advance. But you also briefly mentioned earlier on the, how easy it is to book um, flights. You just go to whatever, Google Flights or something. You, you you do it in two minutes. But do you think that is an issue? What keeps people from traveling by non-flying? Because because it's so complicated. It's so difficult to to book a train in another country where you don't speak the language from the one city to the other. Is, is that something that, yeah, that, that we should work on. I mean, we as, let's say, the European Union or so, to make that more accessible. Because I I travel a lot, and I still and I, I speak more or less uh, uh, some European languages, um, and I still find it a hassle to 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 book a train somewhere. Is is that something that should maybe get more attention politically? Yeah, I um, I really agree with everything you just said there. Um, I think a massive stumbling block for people 
you know, one it one is financial, and that it, it, you know it's a problem because it's it normally is three, four, five, ten times the price to to get a train somewhere instead of a flight. But I think even when you you have money, you've got disposable income, you're like, no, right, I wanna I wanna make the good choice. I want to do slow travel. As you say, it is there is no easy equivalent um, for booking a train. There's all the you know. Well, all the airlines are different. So, I mean, it, it shouldn't be a stumbling block, but it's like every country has its own different competing train companies. None of them really seem to work together that well. I mean, some of them do, um, but a lot of the time it's like, no, it's completely separate. You have to buy your tickets separately. So one of the big problems now is that if you're buying a flight somewhere, you can buy a through ticket. And that means that even if you're making connecting flights, if one of those flights goes wrong, it's the airline's responsibility to get you to your destination that you'd originally booked for. You are not, you don't have to pay out for that. They do. They have to make sure you've got somewhere overnight if you're if you're stranded. They have to give you money for food and drink. I mean, your passenger rights are amazing as an air traveler. As a train traveler, there is absolutely no equivalent. So even if you think you've got something that's a through ticket because you booked it all through train line, it's not a through ticket. What you've got is separate train tickets to get you to your destination. And if one of those is delayed and so you miss the next one, it's kind of no one's responsibility. Like they just wash their hands of you almost. Um, and you might be able to claim back a meager percentage of the ticket of the original train. but. Yeah, you're in no way got that amazing consumer protection that means people don't worry about flying because they know they'll be taken care of. So I do think, um, and I mean, we're specifically talking a lot about trains in Europe, but I think it's something that the EU were looking at, but that they really need to take a stronger stance on it. Um, and train companies are lobbying against, against better protections, which I don't think is a good idea because if you want more people to travel by train, they have to feel confident making that booking right. They have to feel like, oh, if something goes wrong, it, the whole trip isn't going to be ruined. We'll be fine. Um, whereas at the and you know, need to get better. I mean, there are things like um, Eurail and Trainline that that kind of help, but equally, a lot of the time they don't have all the information that you need um, to book. As in, okay how much time have they given you to make your connection? It's an algorithm kind of putting that together, not a human. So it's it's not always to be relied upon. So it's actually probably better to book the tickets individually, but then you need to know what you have to ask for in order to get a berth, if it's a sleeper train or the right kind of ticket. And yeah, I think there are, there are a lot of obstacles in your way. Once you've booked it, I think you have an amazing experience. But at the moment, it is, it's not simple by any means. And I do agree. I think that should change if we want to encourage more people to travel differently. Yeah. And it seems that governments have been throwing taxpayers' monies at saving airliners. Uh, you, we, we saw that during the, the pandemic. One of the very first things that governments were doing is just... Uh, uh, making sure that all the airlines survived, and they've also made regulations in the EU uh, on on these kind of rights for passengers, etc. But they somehow missed uh, the other forms of transport, the ones that we should actually stimulate. So yeah, these are these are good points. Now a lot of people say um, I uh, I am flying, and I don't feel bad about it because I'm offsetting my carbon and. 
uh, that is, I recently saw somewhere uh, a flight announced that you could offset the whole flight for just like, I think, seven euros or so. So you just, you just pay whatever, seven or ten euros and you've paid off all your guilt uh, it's like the good old days in the roman catholic church you can do things wrong but you just say i'm very sorry and you pay a little bit of money and everybody is happy again and um does that does that actually work do they really plant trees does it really help is it really could you really say like um i i pay those 10 10 euros and i can really um claim that uh what I've been doing with flying is not bad for the climate? Uh, well, <laughs> there's there's actually an entire chapter about this in, in Zero Altitude, the book. Um, and it was the chapter I found most difficult to write, I'd say, because it is so incredibly complicated as an issue. Um, the short answer is probably not. <laughs> uh, the longer answer is, yeah very long it's complicated um so offsetting i think there's a real issue if you use an airline's version of that if they say oh just whack on a bit of extra money which normally is is very negligible amount of money um and and it's offset we're done um the problem is that there's there's usually there's pretty little in the way of transparency from them in terms of what they're paying per offset per, per ton of carbon that has been reduced, um, unlikely to have been removed, they'll say reduced, um, and what schemes they're using and what certifications are used because there are, there are loads of different ones as well and each standard has its own set of criteria which might be slightly different. Um, and it's not to say you can't trust any of those because I've talked to people who work at some of those standards and um, you know they're pretty exacting and the schemes that they um, certify are doing what they say the issue with it is um, firstly they're kind of there are all these different kinds of offsets but um, most of the ones you will find are not removing carbon from the atmosphere um, right they are they're they're changing the way for example someone does an activity which means it reduces the amount of carbon that produces so it's making a saving essentially but what it is not doing is oh okay you've put that amount of carbon into the atmosphere from your light from your flight we're just gonna cheekily grab that take it back and it's gone well done you balance is restored <laughs> um there are some offsets that do that um, and they tend to be very expensive um and so I would say if you are going to fly and you want to offset, it's really good to look for offsets that do that, that are carbon removal, not carbon reduction. Um, but the issue with that being more widespread is that we don't really have the, that much capacity for it. There is limited capacity for removing carbon from our atmosphere. So we'll need to do it in the future. It's going to be part of a carbon zero um, you know, society but we need to be careful about what we're using it for. So it shouldn't be for frivolous luxuries. It should be for the things we absolutely cannot do without that are still going to be emitting carbon. Um, and if we want to reach carbon, you know, net zero by 2050, which is the date everyone's focused on, by the time we get there, there's no room for any other kind of offset. The only offsets that can exist are ones that are removals. Um, because the others are just kind of moving their numbers around, essentially. Like, oh, you've used less over there, so I'll take that. 
but there won't be, there'll be no more wiggle room. Um, so that's a very long answer, but I, I think my, well, the conclusion I came to was you should, like in the rest of sustainability, we always say, right, you know, measure first, isn't it? Then reduce, then um, compensate or offset, whatever you want to call it. So reduction always comes first. So you need to reduce the amount of flights we take as much as possible. And then what's left, I think, if an, as an individual, I would probably, if I had to fly, I would buy an offset, but I'd research and make sure it was legit. It's probably going to set me back at least like 20 pounds a ton, maybe, something like that. It's certainly got not going to cost me eight euros added onto my flight. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> I saw it recently even even really abused in 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 uh in the marketing of flying where it said uh somewhere uh, you can now fly all the way to New Zealand aiming at people in the Netherlands that's literally the other side of the world uh, you can now fly all the way to New Zealand for just 21 euros uh, you can offset your carbon that's uh, so like this is this is such a clear lie this should just be forbidden there should be a law against this kind of of manipulation and uh, it 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 was presented in such a way like do something good for the environment by flying to new zealand that was that was kind of the hidden message that was that was in there so it was crazy so we spoke about uh trains uh mainly as an alternative um but um and i i remember reading in your book that uh, this whole trip that you made all the way to Croatia and 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 back to to the UK that there was a quarter uh, of the amount of CO two emitted uh, compared to if if you would have done it by by planes, but there are other ways of course there there uh, you can you can travel by by bus you can also travel by bike and I um, I kind of smiled uh, when I got through the chapter when I saw that you went to the capital of my country to Amsterdam. Uh, to experience more about cycling, how 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 was that experience, and is that something you will you will do more in the in the future? Um, it was it was wonderful, I have to say. Um, I already loved Amsterdam, but I I think before I'd always um, I'd always been very touristy when I went there. Um, not that there's anything wrong with being a tourist, but um, I hadn't really explored much past you know the Canal Ring, and that, that's kind of where everyone winds up um and this trip i was like right i want to i want to go further afield so explore different neighborhoods and i want to do it all by bike and kind of get more of a sense of the bike infrastructure that you have because i think we all know anecdotally okay the netherlands they're bike mad they're great with bikes they've got loads of cycle lanes um but i don't think i truly experienced it before and actually um kind of getting out of the center and and going further out i'm going to pronounce this wrong do you pronounce it Zud-Oost? yes southeast uh, south yeah, oost is it the dutch <laughs> pronunciation is south oost yeah southeast oost. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so there's like a much more kind of like urban industrial area of amsterdam so i i cycled there um and loads of that is like along these like really you know really busy major roads, but you're you're off to the side on your lovely little cycle path, you know, on your bike, feeling very very completely safe. Um, and coming from the UK, even London, we are doing better now. So we are you know year on year getting way more cycle infrastructure, which is great. But it's so different. I mean, 
I, I cycle a lot in London. I commute to work on my bike and I love it. But most people I speak to are terrified of cycling in London and for good reason that we, do, yeah, we just ha haven't built what you guys have built. So you can be on a really nice cycle lane and you come off that. And then if you get a bit lost, there's every chance you could end up on just like a major, major road, major roundabout, feel like you're going to die. And <laughs> if that happens I, I to know, me, I I've been there on to... the bike. <laughs> right? You're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Especially around Elephant and Castle, that's, that's the bit that freaks me out on the old Kent Road. If I find myself there, I'm like, oh no, I just need to get on the pavement and, and wheel my bike along because I, I see death staring me in the face. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, it was really fun, but also really interesting because um, I think as well that there's this assumption that certain countries are just naturally good at that. They've always been good at that. Um, but with the Netherlands, as I'm, I'm sure you know, um, it, it's not like, oh, it's just part of our DNA and it's always been there. There was a concerted effort. There was a decision made because so many people died one year from cycling accidents that they were like, we need yeah. to change this. It, it's got to be different. And so they made, they, it was with an intentional aim, let's make it much safer to cycle. And I think it just shows what countries can do if they really want to, if there's the willpower there. Um, and the desire there to improve things. Um, and again, if we want to get people, not just off planes, but out of cars as well, to be honest, we need to start improving things like that. Yeah, yeah I was, if, if we follow each other on Twitter now since a few hours, and <laughs> if you see one of my latest tweets, one of yesterday, I, uh, I, I put a short video there, just 10 or 20 seconds of uh, people cycling in one of the main streets in the city of Utrecht. And I, I studied there in the 1980s and I've passed through that street thousands of times. And then it was really busy and smelly with cars and everything. And if you now look at it, there's just a few buses going by. There's, there are a few passenger cars and for the rest, it's all cycles. And if you're someday back in Netherlands, Utrecht is like, I don't know, 20 minutes away by train from uh, from Amsterdam, you should have a look there because that city is just, they really get it. They have done so much to improve the livability of the city and it's practically impossible to get in there by car and everything goes on, on bicycles or public transport and it's just so green and the air is cleaner and they, they've done so much to change a really old city. I mean, it has it's a bit like Amsterdam, a really old city, but... Um, it's it's uh it's it's amazing how how far they got so all all these taking all these things into account if you uh if you want to give some advice to people on uh if if i hope you inspire people with your example because i i really believe it's very brave that as a travel writer with because at the end of the day this is your income it is about traveling and writing about it that you took this step and i think it, that, that puts you in a very special league of people that can inspire others to live greener so what kind of advice would you give to to listeners to this podcast we got a few live listeners now and later it will be listened to by by all kinds of other people that pick it up uh, later on when it's on spotify and on, on apple podcast etc um what would you tell them? What should they, if if people want to make a change, where should they start? Because it feels like you alone are so small, you can you can hardly make a difference, and and it's so convenient to fly. So where should you start by making changes? Um, 
it's a really good question. Um, I think, like I said before, you you want to reduce, well, measure and reduce first. So even just like look at the, the travel you have planned in the year ahead, you know, what are the non-negotiables? So the things that you have to do um, or you just really, really want to do. Um, and kind of working backwards from there, you know, if it's if it's business related stuff, especially I don't want to say post pandemic because we're still we're still in the pandemic, but you know, post this change that the pandemic has brought about, um, if it's kind of a business meeting, does it have to be in in person? Can it be online? Can it be over Zoom? Um, we've seen so much business travel reduced from that, um, and I think it's always worth questioning now whether you need to be in the physical same room as someone or not. Is that really you know? Sometimes there there are good cases for no, the the business really does need it to be in person for these reasons and that's fine but I think really look at that before you just say yeah because that's a fun perk for me um sure but but at what cost um and then I think from there if you've got holidays planned you know for me all it's taken is questioning oh well can I get there a different way and a lot of the time the answer is yes um that is not true for everywhere if like we were talking before I, I wanted to go to New Zealand there is really no other option for me but to fly. But if it is somewhere that, okay, well, instead of the journey taking three hours, it might take eight hours, 10 hours, you know, it might take a day instead of half a day. I personally think it's it's worth the sacrifice to just take a bit more time um, and really see the positives actually. So for example, on my, my trip at the moment um, in Spain, I, you know, I'm currently in Valencia, but I just came from, I was in Zaruf, which is like a, a surf town up north in the Basque country. I spent a day in San Sebastian. I'm then going to go on and spend a couple of days in Barcelona. Um, and I wouldn't have done any of those other bits if I wasn't slow traveling because I'd have just gone, oh, well, I'll just fly in and out and, I'll, and that'll be it. I've done my trip. And this way I've turned it into this like very, very enjoyable 10 days of traveling, seeing loads of different stuff, packing loads in. So start to see the opportunities that it can give, not just the negative side of, oh, I don't get there as quickly. You know, can you combine it with other things? Can you make it a multi-stop trip? Um, and if you haven't already planned where you're gonna go, even just consider places that aren't quite as far away. So bit more domestic travel, exploring the kind of beauty that your own country has to offer, because every country has beauty to offer. I really believe that. Um, it's all about changing your perspective and your mindset. And what is it that you want from holiday? Well, normally you want kind of new experiences. You want to engage in a new way with people, with place. Um, and you don't have to go across the world to do that necessarily. Um, yeah. And I think if we if we all just reduced a bit, if we all just thought, I'll do that once in a lifetime trip that I need to take a flight for, but only every few years, you know, certainly not every year, every most years I'm going to travel domestically or near enough that I can do it by train. It would make a massive difference. Yeah. 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 That's wonderful. I, I agree to all those points and I recognize a lot. And I also try to live up as much as possible to, to those uh, those principles i'm looking at uh, the comments there's a chat function in this app since uh, since about uh, one or two months now um first of all um uh, joshua yeah thank you very much it was naomi klein uh, indeed um i forgot her surname don't know why i even met her but i forgot her surname now naomi klein who um who made a similar remark for a long time 
uh, writing about climate change, etc., but not feeling that she had to do something herself um, until she wrote this uh, this influential book. Uh, this changes everything. Uh, Interrail, yes, uh, Evelyn, uh, that is that is still uh, still perfect, still around. Um, Ida, yes, on on hearing the sound is a bit lower. Uh, we we've tried to work on it. We we can't get it better than this. But later in um, uh, once we produce it for um, uh, for publication on the podcast, I think the AI and technological things, whatever whatever that Colin is using, is making it more. Uh, the sound on one level, at least that's what I've seen in the past, or just put it louder on your side. Um, and uh, I see a question from Evelyn um, uh, for you, Helen. Uh, what is uh, or what was uh, your favorite train journey that you ever made? Ooh. Oh, that's a very good question. I'm always terrible at these questions because I just, I sort of fall in love with every train journey I take and every place I go. Um, but I think um, one of the special ones for me, because I have been talking about um, domestic travel and the joys of that is um, if you ever go to the UK, there is um, a train called the Caledonian Sleeper train. And it goes all the way from London up to Scotland. And it goes, there are various kind of routes you can take, but it essentially you kind of leave, you know, very, very, I was going to say very, very urban. Of course, you leave the centre of London, like bustling city centre. Um, and then, you know, you, you go through lots of places that are maybe not that picturesque, but um, it sets off in the evening and you wake up and you're kind of bang in the middle of the Scottish Highlands, um, you know, unless you're getting off at Edinburgh or, or Glasgow. And that for me is just like the most amazing experience because if if you've ever been to the Scottish Highlands, it's just like a different world. It's It's so wild and beautiful majestic um and i and that that train itself is just very they kind of redid it um a few years ago they renovated it so it feels very luxurious um and it's a lot more expensive than flying i'm not going to lie but i i just as as an experience it is wonderful it's really you start off a trip feeling like that bit is is as exciting as the trip you then take you know that's it's again that thing of it's about the journey not just the destination that journey is on a par with anything you'll then go on and see, I would say. Yeah, well, it sounds it sounds wonderful. Actually, I was thinking about Scotland because one of the places I want to go to in, 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 in the weeks to come, I will start this Friday, a period of more than 20 weeks of uh, of being away from home and, and, and traveling. And uh, I have Spain high on my list to visit, but now that I see this heat wave coming, I will think about I should find a cool place in Europe to go to. So I was thinking about Scotland. So who knows? I might uh, jump on this. You call it the Caledonian Express? Is that the name? Uh, Caledonian Sleeper. The Caledonian so Sleeper. So I'll, I'll remember that and, uh, and, and and give it a try. Evelyn was also asking uh, what my uh, favorite train journey was. I think that was long, long time ago in. Uh, 1989, just before communism collapsed all, collapsed all over the world, I took uh, the Trans-Mongolian Railway. So I went from Beijing through Ulaanbaatar and then by train all the way to Moscow and then uh, from there back home to Utrecht where I, uh, I was still studying those days, which was a crazy journey, long, long time ago. Um, wow, and that in the, So that was last days of the Soviet Union kind of that I still saw. 
and um, so yeah so if there's uh let's let's open up to the audience if there's uh, oh i see there's uh, there's joshua hi joshua i was in the chat function so i didn't keep an eye on uh, people oh, no no there. you don't have like thanks for no, the no you me know, kind, uh, remark oh you're you're welcome uh, thanks for this program like in in today's world i really feel like some of these programs on call in are like walking trips like I can, uh, and uh, that's really beneficial, I think, mentally and emotionally and spiritually right now. Um, and so I really do appreciate uh, the work that you guys are doing. Um, I just wanted to say a couple of things in regards to, um, I have an agenda as usual, because I live in the United States and we don't spend money on our infrastructure, especially our train infrastructure like we should. Um, we are currently spending a lot of money on flying. We're going to spend more money on space exploration, which I am for. Um, it looks like we're going to hunt for aliens, except for I think a lot of that money is going to be diverted toward military stuff, and that concerns me. Um, and we are not uh, focused on climate like we should be here either, and we um, have to because when we catch a cold, the rest of the world has bigger problems um and but we're doing things i think mostly still here for oligarchs interests um in regards to our government spending and uh so i want you guys to talk about how high-speed trains are better than boring holes deep into the earth and doing hyperloop technology or if you agree with that path you can we can debate that but i mean i think that we really need to look above ground and use the existing infrastructure and upgrade it significantly with government spending in benefit for the whole population, not just national interest and or oil and petroleum. Well, it's what we do in Europe, so I'm, I'm all for it. But um, uh, what do you think, Helen? Should we invest more in uh, trains above ground instead of uh, digging expensive tunnels? And should is that a role for the government? Uh, yeah, I yes is my short answer um, because it's it's always much easier to work with what you have um, and existing technology um, than to. That I think with aviation in particular, there's a lot always put on kind of what I would call quite pie in the sky technology that sort of technically does exist, but the amount of money and infrastructure change it will take to implement, it means it's just not going to happen in time. So it might be, you know, in 100 years, yes, we're all taking hydrogen planes, but it's certainly not going to happen in time for this 2050 deadline. And I think the same is true of train travel, you know, all this kind of, you know, this um, what could be amazing technology um, going underground, hyperloop, et cetera, Sure, but let, let's actually think about what's the most realistic in terms of cost, in terms of scale, in terms of getting it done in time and getting as many people using it as possible. It, it's going to be a lot less ambitious, I think, than the, the very whizzy new technologies of the future. And we already know high-speed trains are amazing and they work and the amount of time they cut down um, in doing a journey. And if it's new tech, the amount of emissions saved is, is amazing. So yeah, that's what I would want to focus on. Yeah, and Spain is a particular good example of high-speed trains. It's just, it's inc incredible how well it functions in, in Spain. 
uh, and also in France, I would say. I mean, those are two really good examples. You can now go from, from Barcelona to Zaragoza in, I think it's now less than three hours. It used to be like eight or nine hours. Uh, and then you can go on from Zaragoza to Madrid in another three hours. It's just, it's incredible how yeah. how fast and efficient it is. They go like 300 kilometers an hour. So uh, so that's wonderful. Anybody else uh, with questions or comments, just uh, raise your hand or call in, as I should say, because this app is called um, Call In. Um, and, oh, I see a comment coming in. I'd like to go to the chat function. Uh, Brigitte is saying, I'm jealous. I only know Mechelen, Brussels, and Mechelen, Antwerp. I've, I've done that, Brigitte, thousands of times when I was still a diplomat. And I had to go from The Hague, passing Mechelen, uh, and uh, first Antwerp, and then Mechelen, and then go to Brussels, and then later in the day going back. Uh, it's a nice train ride, so there's nothing wrong with uh, with doing that a lot. But yeah, it's not uh, trans-Siberian. That is, uh, that is true. That took like, I think, seven days or nine days. I've forgotten. That was really long. Um, but I look forward to um, to doing this um, Caledonian uh, trip to uh, to Scotland someday. I'm, I'm inspired by uh, by what you said. Um, if there if there are no further questions, I would like to um, uh, to end with um, reminding everyone that this book is coming out. It's on the 26th of May. Um, as I said, I'm privileged to have read it already and uh, that I got a chance to uh, make you aware of it. Um, I think there's already pre-orders going on. So if you, I think the easiest way is just to Google uh, zero altitude. Um, and uh, I think it's also on Amazon that I saw it. When I Googled it, it, it popped up all, all over the internet. So it's easy to find. But maybe, Helen, you have a good... Um, uh, a better way to say for people who want to, to order the book where they should go to than just Amazon? Um, That's a good question. And I uh, should have looked at that beforehand. Um, <laughs> say, if, you, if, you, if you type it in, um, it's it's kind of for sale, not everywhere, but um, if you don't want to use Amazon, it's for sale at a lot of um, kind of smaller bookshop chains as well. So um, you don't have to use Amazon if you're against that. Um, but yeah, available to pre-order coming out on the 26th of May. Yes, and I very much uh, want to echo that. Um, if <laughs> I sometimes use Amazon and uh, you don't just uh, buy whatever you buy, but you also get loads of plastic put around it, way more than would ever be necessary. Um, and there's a lot to say for supporting uh, local uh, local shops, especially local bookshops, because they are dying out and they really, really need your support. So, um, uh, So do get this book. Uh, do try to get it at your local bookshop uh, because uh, they need your support um, and uh, and do enjoy it because this book um, teaches you a lot about um, climate change um, but it's it's also um, uh, it's just fun to read it's, it's it, it combines two things basically the two kind of books that I read normally are either about climate change and that are those are often quite depressive. Um, and I read a lot of travel books, and uh, this book uh, combines both of them. I see a comment coming in from Marianne saying, my travel boat uh, mode is uh, a gypsy wagon with two horses, which is extremely sustainable, Marianne. 
uh, and I would uh, I would love to see pictures of uh, of that trip someday. So with that, um, I would like uh, to thank uh, Helen for for being here. Uh, I think this was really really interesting. I would like to thank the audience uh, for being there, being actively engaged. Uh, and listening here we'll be back tomorrow uh, with Alistair Doyle another Brit there are a lot of Brits in this uh, show by the way um, and at uh, at 3 o'clock also an author by the way uh, of uh, of The Great Melt uh, but we've discussed that already that's how I got to know him in one of the very very first uh, The Planets um, but uh, Zero Altitude is for, the, for today uh, the name to uh, to remember and willie is writing great podcast uh, thank you so that's uh, the first thank you coming in uh stay on on uh, the zoom helen but i'm going to uh, close uh, the uh, the uh, the podcast and i first have to go to somewhere else i see the bottom end room okay thank you guys hope to see you all tomorrow thanks so much bye bye